Hey there, welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations on food and farming. I'm Katie Federal, the Communications Director at the Sustainable Farming Association. And today we're bringing back one of our past guests, Sarah Lindblom, to talk about some soil health tests and certain components of what we should be looking for as we work to achieve soil health in our gardens and on our farms. Sarah is a farmer near Buffalo, Minnesota, entering her eighth growing season, and she's run a CSA, a farm store, and primarily grows fruits and vegetables and herbs um, and chickens on her farm. She's also incorporated her farming experience into doing some soil health education, and, and that's why she's here today. So let's get right to it. So welcome, Sarah. Thanks well, for thank, joining. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Of course. Yeah, so you're going into your eighth season at Solar Fresh, and it sounds like your your knowledge of soil health has grown quite a bit in the last, I mean, six, seven years or so? I think so. I think just paying attention to it as I'm, you know, as I'm farming and as I'm building my knowledge via reading and going to conferences, they kind of interplay between the two of just hands-on experience and seeking knowledge about how the soil really functions. Right. So you didn't go to school necessarily for any of this, but you've gotten a lot of um, knowledge passed to you from other experts and like using your own observations. That's right. Just um, going to the Soil Health Summit, going to the conferences, and just I find the soil health information really fascinating. So I've tried to kind of dig deeper to learn more about what's really going on. And I just think it's really cool that when I am out there, like trellising my tomatoes, for instance, I have a little bit more context about like what's actually happening underground or when I'm interacting with the plants. I have that context to know what's going on, but I can combine that textbook information with what I'm actually observing happening out in the field when I'm transplanting or for, you know, spreading some manure or whatever I can, I actually have like more context from what I've observed on my own. So it kind of goes back and forth between the two. Right. And I think in an earlier conversation, you used the the phrase citizen scientist, which I thought was a really uh, apt way to put it. Like this, these concepts are accessible um, and you don't have to have like a huge skill set to, to learn more and and grow that. Oh, for sure. I think even just as humans, but like farmers especially, we are able to learn scientific information, use the scientific method. Um, It's not like something reserved just for people in a lab or scientists. This is something anybody can really kind of become a citizen scientist. And I think as farmers especially, we really have a unique opportunity where our farms are like our laboratories and we get to try different experiments and we get to see what the results are. Sometimes there's too many variables to really make any like scientific conclusions, but at the same time, it's, I think it's a really fun and interesting part of farming. Oh, for sure. And I'm, I'm excited because I know you've brought um, some different tests that people can use to test their soil in their gardens and on their farms um, that kind of supplement uh, the laboratory tests that you might send in a soil sample for, which we know are also very useful for other reasons. But but before we get there, I know you have this uh, graphic that we'll link to in the show notes for folks, um, but that helps kind of visualize and conceptualize 
uh, what we're looking for in soil health. So maybe we could start breaking that down. Sure. So when we're thinking about soil health, there's really three main components to soil health, the physical, the chemical, and the biological components. And all three kind of interact together to create soil function. And that's what this visual diagram is kind of showing. If you envision a Venn diagram with three circles where each circle represents biological, physical, and chemical, there's an overlap between all three of those components. And that center portion where all three overlap is really soil health, or another way to put that is soil function. So each of those components where they overlap, I think that's where it actually gets really interesting because we're starting to look at soil as a system instead of just kind of these independent parts. They're really these interconnected parts. And that's where the magic happens. Oh, I love it. Uh, it was really helpful to, to, to visualize those three pieces as interlocking rather than I think like, I don't know, thinking back to lecture days in school where I would probably see those as three bullet points. This really helps, um, I think at least for me as a more visual learner, rep represent uh, just how interconnected these three are supposed to be um, in order to achieve what we're looking for rather than as separate boxes to check. Should we start with one of those areas? Okay, sure. Um, so I'll start with biological just because I think that is the most important component of soil health. Yet at the same time, it's also the least understood. Um, we're really just, and when I say we, I guess I mean the real scientists are really just scratching the surface of starting to understand the microbes that are in the soil. We really don't even have a great understanding of the huge diversity of microbes that are in a healthy soil. So the biological, like I say, that includes the microbes but that also would be the mycorrhizal fungi and earthworms, even insects. And I even put beneficial pollinators or beneficial insects in the biological category. So we're really starting to see how, um, yes, that chemical component, like what nutrients are in the soil, that's really kind of been the main focus up until now. But people are really starting to have a better understanding of how important that biological component is. So that's the first category is that biological component. And for there, I mean, you listed a lot of different types of uh, life in the soil. So really just looking for like maximum diversity and quantity. I think that's a good rule of thumb. I know we all talk about the soil health principles. Diversity is super important. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, just maximizing the amount of biological activity and and therefore the diversity so that's when we talk about planting diverse crops that's there's kind of this if you build it they will come as long as we're planting diverse crops we're going to be providing diverse food sources for those different microbes so that will attract more of a diversity of biological activity because we're giving them different, a whole buffet of lipids and sugars that are being um, exudates of those uh, plants' roots. So maximizing our plant diversity will help maximize um, microbe diversity. Sure. Oh, yeah. And then I suppose like the other, one of the other soil health principles is keeping a living root in the soil. 
and that would also you know continue that that buffet right oh for sure that's gonna continue to provide year as um, not disrupting that availability of food sources mm. the other reason that's important is because we want our soil systems to be able to develop more complexity and and for them to be able to do that, they need stable intermediary forms. So we really want to not disrupt what's happening and allow the soils to develop more complexity on their own. So keeping that living roots in the soil will allow that soil system to develop more complexity, which is ultimately more a more complex system will be more resilient. Right. Okay, so we have these three components. We've got biological. What's the second one? So I mentioned chemical already. Um, that's kind of talking about what nutrients are available. There's kind of those main nutrients um, that plant, all plants need the, in larger quantities like nitrogen. There's also um, a lot of nutrients plants need just in very small quantities, but they still need those to function. Um, the pH of the soil would fall in this category, this, the mineral salts available. So that's the chemical component of soil health. And then the, that third one um, would be just the physical structure of the soil. So this is talking about um, how compact is the soil, what's the um, porosity of the soil, how many pores, or is there room in that soil for airflow or for... Um, water flow and energy flow in the soil. So that's the um, physical structure of the soil. Okay, so these three components and then each of these on the Venn diagram overlap. Um, let's start with the biological again. That seems like a really rich, <laughs> rich component, yeah. very complex. Yeah. I, th I think that is the most interesting one to me, at least that I find the most interesting. And I think just maximizing that, the other pieces will kind of fall into place. Mm. Um, so for instance, you can have all the nutrients in the soil be present, but if there isn't biological activity happening in the soil, it's just going to be difficult for the plants to access the nutrients. They're not going to be available to the plants. So you really need the biology to help kind of break down those nutrients and make it so that the plants are able to absorb those. And then if we're looking at the intersection between biological and physical, the biological is really what helps create a good physical structure in the soil. So if you envision worms kind of making their way through the soil, creating those wormholes or the mycorrhizal fungi just branching out from the roots, creating kind of a sponge-like effect. So you really need the biological component to create this really healthy physical structure of the soil. And this is what really that intersection between physical and biological helps determine how energy is going to be able to flow through the system. So thinking about water flowing through the system, um, airflow, and just any of this energy that's moving through the soil, it's, that's really what's happening in that intersecting space there. So when you're talking about energy flow through the system, are you talking about um, the system as the soil, the system as the soil and the plant? Are they kind of subsets of each other? Yeah, exactly. So 
A plant is its own system. If you think about the cells that make up a plant and the interconnections between a leaf and a stem and a flower and a fruit, those are all kind of interconnected parts of that system. And then we've got the soil is its own system. If you think about these three components and how they're working together. And then where we have the interconnection between the plant and the soil, that's kind of these two subsystems coming together to make a bigger system that would maybe be represented by like our whole farm system. So when I talk about energy flow, um, really the main source of energy from our farm or for plants in our soil is actually coming from the sun. So we're talking about are the plants able to take that energy from the sun and then use that to produce their own food through photosynthesis and therefore creating sugars and lipids. And in a really healthy system, there's going to be a surplus of those, those things that the plant is creating. And what's going to happen is the plant will actually secrete those excess food sources, lipids and sugars throughout their roots. And that will in turn um, feed the soil microbes. So we can really for sure say that this is a system just because we have these inter, uh, interconnected parts. There's different parts making up what's happening here. And then we can see there's for sure interconnections going on. So then when we talk about energy flow, it's really that that energy coming into the system via the sun or water or nutrients is being maintained and re, re, you know, recycled kind of within that system and not lost through erosion, for example. Gotcha. Yeah. And so I, that, that helps me understand better why the center um, could be soil health, but also soil function, because you're maximizing kind of like retaining all of those energy flows too. Exactly. So I would say a, one very simple definition of soil health is the ability of the soil to function. Gotcha. So you could say soil health or soil function, whatever you want to call that center part of the soil. This Venn diagram is just where these three components are coming together and really um, maximizing their ability to work together. Yeah, the, this visual for the interdependencies of those three components, I think, is very, very helpful in helping frame the uh, the systems aspect. Of exactly. It. Like, yeah. you can't neglect one of these areas. Otherwise, it's not even going to matter if you have, <laughs> you know, good chemical. If you're adding fertilizer to your soil, but you're neglecting completely the biological component or the physical component, which ways that you might neglect those would be excessively disrupting your soil through tillage or by spraying a chemical, whether that be an herbicide or a pesticide or even a fertilizer is going to disrupt the system. Mm -hmm. So really trying to um, not create those disruptions in your soil. I'm thinking we maybe should have done this at the top of the show. I'm going to go to my fridge and get my, uh, my soil health principles magnet. I think we really try to drill these into people's heads, but it seems like this is kind of a new lens to look at them through. So for reference for the audience, the five soil health principles, we have keep the soil covered, minimize soil disturbance, increase crop diversity, 
keep living roots in the soil, which we talked a little bit about earlier. And the fifth one is integrating livestock into that system. Um, we'll put a link to the show notes to those five if they're if they're new to you. Um, but Sarah, it strikes me that like each of these principles immediately ties into each one of those three components of your your soil health Venn diagram. I think that when you look at it through the the lens, like you say, of this Venn diagram kind of interconnected systems approach, that it's really a proof for me of why you should use the soil health principles. So, for example, um, number two, minimize soil disturbance. Kind of going back to providing a stable intermediary phase for the soil to be able to evolve more complexity, you really need to minimize soil disturbance so that the soil can evolve a more complex um, system. It can create a positive environment that's conducive to more diverse microbes, or you aren't disrupting that mycorrhizal fungi. You're really letting that mycorrhizal fungi continue to branch out and expand. Um, if, you, if, for example, you come up with a tiller and you chop all that up and disturb it, you're not only disrupting the biological component by um, kind of ruining any mycorrhizal fungi that's been established, but you're also kind of um, homogenizing the soil structure. So you're rooting all those wormholes. You're kind of um, compacting the soil because of this homogenization and um, taking a step back in creating this complex ecosystem. And you're making it just harder for the soil to evolve to another more complex ecosystem. I mean, if you're looking at keeping living roots in the soil, we, we kind of discussed that as well, just how that's creating more diversity for the soil microbes. And you're also, um, you're creating more better soil structure really, because you're creating more environment for that mycorrhizal fungi to expand off of. And you're not disrupting the soil. You have those roots that maybe a plant dies and it creates a void where that root was, and that creates more soil structure. So you really want to like perpetuate this you get almost maybe it's called like a flywheel effect where these relationships aren't quite linear they're exponential so the longer you create these stable intermediary forms and you allow this to happen you're actually going to see an exponential increase in the benefits and it's not going to be like a linear relationship where kind of slowly putzing along getting more and more benefits you're actually going to see exponential benefits because the microbes are able to regenerate at a faster rate as there's more and more microbes actually in the soil. Uh, Okay, yeah, the exponential part totally makes sense when you think about how each of these kind of amplifies the ability of the other to prosper. Mm -hmm. And when I say each of these, like, yeah, chemical, biological, and physical. And then real quick, Sarah, one thing, one phrase you mentioned, I think you said stable intermediary forms. Could you define that real quick? I'm not exactly sure what... Sure. So without going into too much depth um, about the entire systems theory, just very briefly, um, a healthy system has some important characteristics, Mm -hmm. and those include resilience, the ability ability to self-organize, and the ability to form hierarchies. 
So when I say self-organizing, that means that healthy systems are able to become more complex. So think about in our human body, for instance, a cell com- cells come together to form organs. And that's because they're able to self-organize and create more complexity. And when I talk about um, forming hierarchies, when systems are able to self-organize and become more complex, that's going to naturally create these hierarchies. So in order to become more complex, systems need to kind of reach this equilibrium point where they're functioning in balance at a healthy equilibrium. Think about, like, I've been substitute teaching this <laughs> this school year. I think about it that way. You've kind of got the students, you've got the parents, there's the teachers, and there's the principal. So um, you really need each layer to have this balance between control and autonomy, where they're at this healthy equilibrium where everything's really functioning. And if that happens and you you get to this point, this stable intermediary form the system is able to become more complex. So for instance, a company maybe hires more employees. In the terms of, of soil health, you might think of it as, okay, we've, we haven't tilled our soil for a couple years. We haven't sprayed chemicals on it. The soil is like, okay, I'm kind of comfortable right now. I'm getting healthier. I'm able to support more complex life forms. I'm able, like the earthworms are going to show up the microbes are going to show up because you're not just like killing them all with an herbicide, for instance, or you're not disrupting the soil structure with tillage. So as the soil, it might kind of start out slow. You might be like, I'm not really seeing any benefits and I'm putting in all of this extra work and not getting great benefits from it. But that's because you really need these stable intermediary forms where this it's not going to be as complex and you're not going to get as many of the benefits right off the bat. But if you are patient and you let it go a little bit longer, you'll see like all of a sudden you're kind of getting these better structure and gradually it will happen faster and faster if you kind of like let go of control a little bit, let like chaos happen. <laughs> and you kind of there's this balance between Allowing a bit of chaos, but also keeping things predictable and steady, you know? So you kind of have to strike this balance between I've got to get my veggies planted in the ground and I've got to do what I've got to do for that, but I'm kind of going to let things happen a little bit on their own and just let them do their own thing and let this complexity evolve on its own. So okay. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> no, I think yeah, I think that does. I was thinking about I think other like uh, people examples as we were going through. Like, oh my gosh, when a kid gets like their driver's permit, like <laughs> exactly. I know, and that's kind of the interesting thing about this systems theory is that really you can apply it to all different things, and you can really think about it different ways. It's kind of a framework that lets you have a lot of flexibility in how you approach things, and it's. Yeah. It brings in a lot of the creativity that I really enjoy about farming or about really anything is is kind of using your creativity and also like tolerating some chaos and just kind of let, letting go of control and just being delighted by like surprising things that, that <laughs> result. 
Oh my gosh. And that's such a good life skill too. I think. Especially <laughs> yeah. in the last couple of years, I think it's really clear how uncomfortable we as humans are with, you know, with the sense of chaos or with not knowing what would might happen and not having total control. <laughs> but yeah, so you also created a soil health report card to kind of put these three components into like a practical um, way of measuring progress on, on soils, whether it's like a garden or farm. So um, maybe you want to walk us through those? Yeah, the report card is a great way to just record what you observe. And then you can kind of measure over time any changes and hopefully improvements, but just create some baselines in these different tests and then continue repeat the tests maybe once or twice a season and then record that information and hopefully don't lose your report card <laughs> and then see if your soil health practices, like say you're trying to implement the soil health principles and you want to see, is this actually working? You can use this as kind of a way to measure that. Awesome. Okay. Well, let's start with the first test. Kind of sure. describe what what component we're looking at um, and how it works. Okay. So the first test is the infiltration test. And basically what this test involves is taking a ring of some sort. So you could really use anything that you have on, on hand, whether that be like a soup can with the bottom cut out of it, mm. or like a coffee can with the bottom cut out. You just want to make sure you're using the same size ring every time you repeat the experiment. Okay. And then what you do is you pound that ring into the ground so that it's about an inch into the ground. I marked a line on my um, soup can to make sure I was pounding it in the same depth every time. Mm. And then you pour the water into that. And again, you just want to make sure you're pouring the same amount of water every time you do that, about an inch of water. And there's in that directions sheet, I provide an equation that you can use to calculate based on the size of your ring, how many milliliters of water do you need to get an inch of water? So if that's kind of confusing, just look at that directions and it shows you just a really easy way to calculate that. And then you're simulating basically an inch rain event and you pour okay. that into the ring that you pound into the ground, and then you time how long does it take for that water to infiltrate. And you're kind of creating a baseline as you do this. There's, um, there's not necessarily something you're aiming for, but if it's taking like hours and hours for that water to infiltrate, that means that you probably have some soil compaction going on. And if you do get an, an inch or even more rain event, that water is probably going to just be running off the top of your soil, bringing valuable topsoil with it because it's not able to just be absorbed like a sponge. Whereas if you have functioning soil, that water will easily absorb. On the other hand, if you have it going just running through really quickly, you might have a really sandy soil, and that just means your nutrients might run through quicker or you might need to be irrigating more in times of drought. So the infiltration test is a good measure of your soil's physical structure. Okay. For someone with sandy soils, for instance, like what might that indicate for them? Like what 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 could they control or adjust? Sure. I mean, if we're having a really rainy time time of year or season, I mean it's gonna actually help you to have a sandier soil because the moisture is 
come is you know coming through faster but oftentimes that means you don't have as much clay in your soil and clay is really mineral rich mm-hmm. so if you're lacking clay in your soil structure that means that you may need to attend to the plant's short-term nutrient needs by adding some sort of fertilizer and there's a whole spectrum of fertilizers you can definitely find more um, even on the market now there's more and more fertilizers that are biologically active that you could add um so obviously you could do that this is where a soil health test might a soil test might come in like a lab test where you might want to send a sample into a lab and assess like which nutrients am I lacking in my soil Mm -hmm. and that's your cue in the short term what are you going to need to provide for the plants because your soil might not have a physical structure that's holding on to those nutrients they're kind of getting washed through faster Um, in the longer term um, to improve that soil structure of a really sandy soil this is where things like adding manure or incorporating livestock would really be your best and fastest way to improve that physical structure where you're having more organic matter in your soil. So, I mean, obviously cover cropping, reducing disruption via um, reduced tillage or no-till methods is going to come into play. But I mean, all of the science, all of what Gabe Brown has showed us and what other soil scientists have showed us is that the fastest way to get there is by incorporating livestock. So, Okay, so the people with sandy soils are not without hope by any means. Not, yeah. not, at all, not at all. It's just it might be a bit more if you don't have like livestock of your own, for example, you just might need to invest in more compost and just add add and add and add as much compost as you can so and keep as much of the crop residue you know try not to remove crop residue as long as it's not something that you have like a disease you know obviously if you have tomato diseases remove the tomato crop residue but say you have a cover crop like an an oat and peas cover crop try to like maybe leave that crop residue if you can Okay. Yeah, lots of good ideas there. Yeah, there's lots of different approaches you can take for sure. Yeah. And when you mentioned um, if you don't have livestock of your own, I know Jared has done a few episodes with people who do custom grazing. So if you're listening and you're looking for that, uh, check check out some of Jared's episodes. So that's that's infiltration test. Sounds really useful for identifying a variety of um, potential issues or things to work on or things that are going well. What's, what's the second test you have for us? Okay, so the next one is the slake test, which um, I really like to use for demos because it's the most like visual way to kind of see what's going on. And I think it really is a good aha moment. Um, what's helpful with the slake test too is to compare with like some sort of control sample if you're able to do that. Like I go to my neighbor's field and get a sample. <laughs> in the shroud of darkness and I can take up a little clod and, and just compare with what they're doing, their tillage and their chemical applications versus like an area where I haven't been tilling. But if you don't have something to do that with, you can just compare with your own sample over time. Mm-hmm. And what that involves is taking a clod of soil, letting it dry out 
as so if it's moist when you collect that sample just make sure to let that dry out D depends on you know the relative humidity how long it takes for that soil sample to dry out and then you basically submerge that in water somehow i use like a little basket that i made out of hardware cloth and submerge that in a uh, like a quart container like a quart mason jar filled with water there's other ways you could do that using like a plastic pot bottle or something and then you kind of observe what happens to that sample does it just immediately like dissolve and crumble or is it actually able to absorb the moisture and like hold its soil structure even when you're ex ex uh, exposing it to like an extreme amount of moisture and then what you would do based on your observations there's a table included in the toolkit that advises how to assign a stability class rating so you can quantify your observation a little bit i like to take a picture of it and you could put that picture in the report card in addition to um assigning that stability class rating Okay, so this is another test that really indicates kind of what's going on physically with the with the soil. Definitely. It definitely shows your soil's physical structure, but like mm -hmm. we mentioned, the physical structure kind of depends on the biological activity in your soil. Mm. So you could kind of indirectly use this test as an indication of the biological activity. And when I'm collecting my samples, I really like to observe the clods um, and you can see, are there like little roots in the clod? Are there wormholes in the clod? So that's a good way to observe um, the soil biological activity. And really with any of these tests, as you're doing the tests, it kind of just forces you to be up close and personal with your soil. So I use it as an opportunity to just be like, how does my soil smell right now? Is it when I like squeeze it together does it hold its shape or does it really just crumble easily am i mm. observing like centipedes and ants and insects kind of crawling around so that's its own whole thing of just kind of the tests i think kind of fine-tune your observational skills by quantifying it a little bit though so that that kind of helps just to have like a physical like actual test that you're trying to do yeah. And I, I, as you mentioned, with that being like a great um, test to demo for, for workshops and stuff, I think that is, I thought that's the one I always remember because mm -hmm. it's it's the most striking to see kind of side-by-side -side samples and the differences and um, how they were taken care of and then seeing the differences and how, how quickly they fall apart. <laughs> right. I yeah. mean, if just going out and looking at your fields during a rain event isn't enough to get a sense of what's going mm -hmm. on, I think the slate test really just drives it home you really get an idea of what's happening when there's a big rain event there we go jared had a great story on a recent episode where he like during a huge rain event mm -hmm. got soaked and was like on his belly looking at where the water was going in his field <laughs> so you don't have to do that i guess if you do the <laughs> I recommend if you do the slate test yeah <laughs> they probably both have their advantages <laughs> Definitely. But yeah, this lake test is a little more controlled environment to do it in. So. And you can be dry. So. Yeah, exactly. Us farmers were used to not being, we're used to being in all elements anyway. But but it's this is kind of the citizen science coming in. It's kind of fun to put these experiments together and, and you can kind of hypothesize what you think is going to happen. And, and sometimes 
we know systems surprise us and sometimes mm-hmm. the results of these tests can be surprising too but mm-hmm. that gives you a chance to be like well why am i not getting the results i may be expected so oh gosh yeah and i wonder if you would see i mean you probably would see differences in different um fields i guess that have been growing different things and Definitely. maybe at your scale is like all right well i've been growing x y and z in this row for the last two years and then this row and are they different and Have you experienced anything like that? I think with just being surprised by the systems, um, what, why that sometimes happens is we tend to focus on like outlier events. We tend to focus on really memorable, like crop failures or like a really memorable Mm. drought or a really memorable heavy rain. And we don't focus as much on behaviors over time. So I think yeah. that the results would be less surprising if we were focused more on behavior over time. And mm. I think that's why the report card is helpful is because it kind of forces you to take these observations over time instead of just focusing on like that one really horrible like cabbage moth year or something like that. All right. So that's two tests down. We got a third. Okay. So I was kind of talking about um, using these as an observation or as an opportunity to observe your soil. Mm -hmm. And I think the earthworm count is a great one to do that because you're basically what you do for this test is measure out like one square foot. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't matter the size you do as long as each time you do the test, you take the same area. So, like, I'll take a five-gallon bucket, turn that upside down over the spot that I'm going to take the sample, Mm -hmm. and I'll just kind of make a mark around that bucket and then dig a hole out from there that's about a foot deep. And then I'm taking about a foot, give or take, you know, cubic foot sample. And it's best to do this test in the spring or the fall when the earthworms are a bit more active to get a more higher count, I guess, or more accurate count. But, um... Then what you do is you take that sample, put it on like a tarp and just count the number of earthworms that you find in that sample mm-hmm. and mark that down. So it's a super easy, I mark down the location, I mark down like was I using my bucket or some other way to measure the sample size and then the number of earthworms that I observed. And this is just a good opportunity to be like, what other critters am I seeing in there? Mm. What's the scent of the soil? Um, any other observations you're making about your soil at that point? So that's a super easy way to just be like, how much biological activity is going on in my soil? If I have earthworms, I can deduce that I have other, it's conducive to life in that soil. There's other um, maybe microscopic organisms I can't necessarily see them but I can deduce that they're probably there because I know I have other going up the trophic levels I have other organisms that are there so I must have they must be feeding on something so oh my gosh I was just like kicking up some uh what ninth grade earth science (laughs) into my head I was like what where do the earthworms fall on the trophic levels is that the right term yes all right I got it (laughs) Um, yeah I just think it's a super simple and there are lab tests you can use to to like get a better sense of microbes and whatnot but this is just an easy at home way if you're like I'm just never going to get around to sending that sample in (laughs) or if you're like I want to do something that's more empowering on my own that I don't need to send a sample out and I don't really need any fancy equipment that this is a super easy way to do that. 
that sounds like also a great activity for uh, if you've got little helpers on your on your farm. <laughs> good good activity for kiddos. I think all of these are would be great to do with mm-hmm. kids. Like just easy kind of you can make a hypothesis, you can use the scientific mm-hmm. method, you can have some controls and variables in there. So it's definitely like a super straightforward some scientific experiments that would be great for kids or you know us non expert scientists right yeah oh exactly okay so we've covered some tests for physical and biological components i'm guessing we got a chemical one too so the easiest way to measure your and obviously the ph test which is what i'm going to propose you're not going to get a sense of like how much nitrogen is in your soil and whatnot but Mm -hmm. it is a benchmark to be like am i on track with my soils ph the pH test, there's a lot of different ways you can do this. You can just use the pH test strips. Mm-hmm. You can use a pH meter. There's even a really simple way of just using like baking soda or vinegar to see how it reacts. If you don't have like a pH meter or test strips, you just add, you take a sample, make a slurry, and you add baking soda once to one sample and vinegar to another sample and based on the reaction and that's all of the information on how to do that is in that directions okay. which reaction would mean acidic or basic and that's obviously a very rough way of going about it sure but if you just really don't have any other way to do it you could use that to find like an extreme imbalance in your ph okay and then the report card um also has information on like ideal pH levels and, you know, what different pHs might mean for your soil. Sure. So, for example, um, a, a 5.5 soil pH might just mean your soil is not very conducive to microbial activity. So, it's just going to be hard to have microbial activity. So, there's different things you can kind of deduce from based on your soil pH. Okay. And then there's easy ways to amend that either adding lime or peat moss, or there's different amendments you can add to adjust your soil pH. So it's just a good, really basic assessment to do. Yeah, okay. And so if you wanted to get more information about other nutrients that are happening, then that'd be more of a situation where you would do get a lab test then. Definitely, yeah. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to figure out what's your calcium levels, what are your boron levels, like you could send in a lab, a sample to a lab, And there's certain ways to take soil samples. You can either do as individual samples for each field, or you can get an average by mixing together your samples if you really only want to have to like pay for one test, for example. Um, So there's different ways. And I know there's resources out there about the best ways to take a soil sample. And Mm -hmm. usually like the lab would even provide that information i look up with just like the lab that you're going to send it to and figure out what they suggest for that but yeah these tests aren't meant to be a replacement for lab testing um they're kind of either a supplement or if you just find lab testing inaccessible to you for any reason like these are things that you just there shouldn't really be many barriers to being able to do any of these tests because you can do them with all just basically things you find in your recycling bin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's the beauty of these is it's it's very accessible and it's not so complicated even uh, scientifically that like <laughs> you can draw conclusions that are gonna put you on the right track. Definitely, and if nothing else, if you take these tests and you're like, 
marking down your results and you're like, I'm really not necessarily finding any patterns, you know, keep doing the tests over time and patterns will emerge eventually. And just kind of look at it as an opportunity to observe your soil. You'll get something out of it, even if the baseline measurements don't necessarily reveal anything right away. You'll definitely get some more information just by like going through the process of doing these tests. Right. And, and to reiterate, I think we mentioned this before that like you can do these in your garden, like you, you can do these in your enormous acres and acres farm or you can do it in your backyard kind of thing. So mm-hmm. that's really great. Thank you so much for sharing these tests. Um, the report card and the directions and the video walking through um, some of those tests are all on the SFA website. We'll put the link in the show notes. Otherwise, it's under our soil health page and then into a soil health for fruit and vegetable producers. Um, tab on the side and you'll also see a tab for the report card and stuff but we'll put a direct link in there for you and Sarah you were also going to mention some books for people who are interested in learning more about the systems thinking yeah if you find this whole systems theory interesting a few books I would recommend one that's just about systems theory is called thinking and systems by Donella Meadows and that is just a great reference about kind of the theory behind systems thinking And I found that very helpful in just kind of approaching my farm in a new way. Another book that I thought was really interesting talking about putting this into practice, even kind of the economics behind it and the lifestyle is called Miraculous Abundance. And that is written by two French farmers. Their farm is in Normandy. It's called La Ferme du Bec Halloween. And they have a whole um, permaculture system and they do a lot of education on their farm. But that book is just um, kind of some more practical application of how they put this systems thinking into practice. Another book that I found useful if you're wanting to kind of do some permaculture design on your farm or maybe even get into like permaculture consulting and do like permaculture consulting for other people is called Permaculture Design by Aranya, a step-by-step guide. And that's a pretty compact little volume that touches on system theory, but then dives into really good practical advice on how to observe your farm, how to create like diagrams and like maps and drawings of your farm and create a whole permaculture design for your farm or for other farms or other spaces. And then my probably number one favorite is One Straw Revolution by Masanobu Fukuoka. And I remember when I first was doing my internships, this book was provided to me through my like internship program that I did. And um, it was just like mind blowing. And I, mm. I love this book. I've read it a couple times and I feel like everybody should read this book. If you have to choose like one book about farming, this would be like what I would choose. It's about, wow. it's written by a Japanese farmer who raised um, primarily like mandarins and rice. Mm-hmm. And it talks about his whole system of how he raises, how he approaches orcharding and how he approaches small grain production. But his whole philosophy um, 
could really be a could really be a good way to approach any type of farming or really just like life in general he kind of like it's kind of the whole eastern philosophy approach to farming which i think i think he really just hits the nail on the head whether or not all of it is like 100% practical for everybody to try mm-hmm. it's definitely like the direction to strive for so one straw revolution is definitely a topic for me in this whole area I actually just started reading that a few months ago. I, I'm a slow reader, so even though it's a, it's a pretty short volume, but I'm about halfway through. Um, but I I was really interested in um, how granular he gets, I guess, in like explaining like this is the amount of seed and when I spread it, and these are like the specific cover crops that I employ. But um, I, I mean, he's a great example of long-term observations on your farm because I think he spent decades, from what I understand, just trying and I don't even know if he uses the word failing necessarily but just like noticing what was appropriate for his um for his soils and his plants and I also really liked the concept that he talks about of do nothing farming where he's just like trying to work so hard with the natural systems that he's not actually working hard and they're (laughs) they're doing most of the work for him I know it's it is a really great book like you say it it oscillates between this big picture philosophy and like totally just step-by-step directions on how to do this stuff and yeah the do nothing farming I feel like I've tried to take that approach in life in general just (laughs) not forcing things and kind of like letting things play out how they will and like obviously take action at certain critical moments to do what needs to be done but at the same time, you can't go out there and be pulling on your veggies to try to make them grow faster. I mean, you kind of have to let, you have to have a lot of patience with farming, especially these soil health practices. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it really is interesting to hear kind of the whole arc of his farming career, how, what it really took to put these practices into reality. Have you read... Um... I forget who wrote it. It's The Lean Farm. By, I think, is it Hartman? Ben Hartman or something That like sounds that? familiar. I thought it was Ben somebody. Yeah. 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 Was that, it's, it's been a while since I picked that up and I got through part of it. But I think it, it spoke to kind of that philosophy of the um, working with systems so you're not working so hard. Do you that feel like totally that was a good example? Yeah. Okay. I think that's totally a great systems approach. He kind of is talking about like lean farming which is kind of a, like, based on the Japanese Toyota lean manufacturing principle. So systems theory is really applicable to any, like, manufacturing. But I think his, that book is a great resource. So we kind of talked a lot about how systems theory applies to soil and just focused on that one particular system. But if we look at our farms, like, how we're planting our crops and when... And, and like our even like our pack shed design or like our harvesting systems, this system theory can really apply to like any of that stuff. And that lean farming book, I think, really gets into systems theory applied to like your whole getting the stuff planted really mm-hmm. and harvesting and all of that stuff. So that's another great that is a really great resource for this for this as well. Great. Well, okay. We'll put all these uh, these book names and links in the show notes. That that was a lot of good resources. Um, I think we could probably talk for a long time. And my dog is getting <laughs> restless. She's trying to get out of her cone. So. <laughs> 
maybe we'll call it but (laughs) yeah thanks so much it was great to have you back on thank you for having me dirt rich is produced by the sustainable farming association we believe that agriculture done well heals for more resources or to tap into the farmer to farmer network visit us at sfa-mn.org